Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Eli Wolf, who is a two-time Paralympian in the sport of soccer, seven-a-side soccer. Uh, he was influential in getting athletes with disabilities to be award winners at the SBs. Uh, this is kind of interesting. So helping to change Major League Baseball from calling it a disabled list to an injured list, that fits really well with what we're going to talk about, uh, was supportive of Casey Martin, who was a golfer who was trying to play on the PGA Tour and use a cart because he had a circulation issue with his leg and so couldn't walk as well. Uh, he, Eli, uh, coordinated efforts to include sport within the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability. His work focuses on the intersection of research, policy, and practice to advance sport and human rights development and social change. So, Eli, thank you very much for joining us. So great to be here. Thank you. This is cool. So the whole idea of human rights. I mean, it's human rights, it's sport. It's, it's a really, it's a really big question. So, and it becomes personal, right? I mean, this for you became personal as, as a little kid, right? I mean, this is, this is how you get started on this stuff. How did you get involved? How did, how did you get involved in disability advocacy, but also get involved in sport after a disability? Yeah. So actually it's um a little bit, of my family background and kind of how I was growing up um, and then obviously the disability piece but growing up there was always a big emphasis on uh, on um, social justice or community engagement on academics and also on uh, sports so those three things were always big um, growing up my my grandfather actually um, I'm clerk during Brown versus Board of Education with the Supreme Court and uh, so it was kind of like in the mix or in the DNA there of like kind of just learning and being aware of kind of social justice issues. And then for me, kind of with having a disability at the age of two and then getting involved in, you know, academics and sports and um, going along the pathway there and just recognizing some of the issues of equity and inequity um, pretty early. Um, and then I went to boarding school up at Milton Academy here in Boston. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you just start to see a lot of things. Um, uh, and I, I first learned about adaptive Paralympic sport uh, at Milton, at, um, at Mass Hospital School. I was at Milton Academy and I was traveling over to, uh, to Mass Hospital School. Actually, Sebastian DiFrancesco was one of my early mentors who uh, kind of brought me into the Paralympic adaptive sports space. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I, and, then, and then after, through college, I then got connected to uh, Richard Lapchik and Richard Lapchik is sort of like the human rights uh, person and social conscious of sport for particularly racial justice. And um, so he, I was bringing in the disability piece, but I, I slowly recognized that disability is just a lens, a part of the question, a part of the conversation. And then I, I started to, look more at kind of the human rights dimensions of sport and uh, 
and that's kind of where I've I've stayed um, for a more like long time now. So. It's interesting you talk about the family DNA, right? That your your grandfather clerking during Brown versus the Board of Education, which obviously was, was at big ramifications within Boston as well. Uh, just and so it's also interesting though too, like. How did you start in sports? So you said you had a, a stroke when you were two years old, so you're ambulatory, but affected on one side. Did Were you like the other kids? Did you go to soccer? I mean, soccer, you, you graduated from high school in 95, so soccer was bigger. It wasn't as big as it is right now. But did you start? Did you start yeah, just playing soccer? Right How did that it. work? Yeah, my I don't my parents really got me into soccer. Like I had the stroke of two and I was playing soccer at four. And um and they just I think they just saw that I was really into it and, and I, I developed a passion and I would I would get really uh really focused and really wanted to do well and keep up with my peers and and I was able to stay pretty even, um, particularly like, you know, elementary school, middle school, and, uh, and then into high school. And then I was able to keep up even through college. I was able to be a walk-on while I was at Brown. And I was able to train with the Brown team. I wasn't a starter or anything. And they, they really just allowed me to train, particularly with supporting the Paralympic part of my experience at the time. But high school, I was there. I was part of the junior varsity, varsity teams. Um, but I think a lot of it was I had, you know, good speed. I had good field sense, um, you know, and it just, I combined, you know, soccer. I also played a lot of racket sports. So I did tennis, table tennis, squash, racquetball, you know, all the rackets, badminton. Um, so I really just, my dad in particular um, was really a sports passionate my mom they they just really supported me to go for it um and uh you know I, I think it was a great way to connect with my peers and I developed a lot of my friends a lot of like moments on the field where I did things that were surprising to probably a lot of people that kind of got me support or 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 uh you know entree into uh you know just um being recognized for as a person, you know, as, as just a, like them, you know, um, and so I think that helped a lot. You know, different goals I scored or things that I did. It was just just a way to say, you know, I'm just a regular kid. Just just I happen to have a disability, and um, so that I I think that was always something that I think I was aware of and paid attention to. That that sport was a catalyst for quite a bit. I mean, there were moments in sport that were challenging that I faced barriers or you know like someone said oh you know made fun of me probably behind my back or something and or I overheard him say something and I would kind of like try to prove myself in a certain way um but I also didn't I didn't really learn about the Paralympic stuff until much later you know until like toward the end of my high school time and uh so then and then I was that was a really like a a transition for me because I had to kind of understand it because my whole world had been in kind of a non-disabled or able-bodied sport and so I had to kind of like come to an understanding of what this is and what it is and how does it work and 
And so I think that's probably where some of my research interests came because I was just kind of curious, like, what is it and how does it function and, and why is it, you know, get the support or, or lack of support that it does. And, but, um, but yeah, you know, in, in, uh, 19, in, when I was in uh, 1992, my dad took me to the World Cup in Italy. And, uh, you know, so soccer was always like a thing that I just really was like really into and passionate about. And so it's, it's kind of continued. And, um, but now, you know, my obviously really interested in all sports and all aspects of the sports world. But, but soccer would, for a long time has kind of been that, that one journey. That driving force. Yeah. The advocacy part often comes from feeling this sense of inclu exclusion, you know, from, from feeling separate. But it sounds like from your experience, you were pretty well integrated throughout throughout growing up and didn't feel any more a sense of separation than any other kid, obviously. And oftentimes separation is an easy thing to feel kind of no matter who you are. Why did why did the sport part build or marry with the advocacy part for you? Where did you see the need for this sense of advocacy? Did that happen when you were younger? Did it happen when you were in the Paralympics? How did that come about? Yeah, no, I think that I, I always did, even at an early age, like middle school, you know, I always had this kind of advocacy aspect of me. Like, um, you know, there's a couple of stories like in early ages where I would like, you know, take my teachers to the principal's office and, you know, like I had a, a PE teacher and a music teacher and, you know, like the music teacher was making fun of kids that wore Velcro and I happened to be wearing, I was the only kid wearing Velcro at the time. And I then like went down to the principal's office and like had her reprimanded. <laughs> and, um, and I also had a PE teacher that was like making fun of kids that couldn't do pull-ups at the time. And, and I also like, you know, I think I, did something more expressive, I think, you know, I did something like that, but I didn't get in trouble because like I, um, so there was these moments where I was like, definitely like showed like some of my fight, but I also, um, I think part of it, fast forward, like into um, like high school, college, I definitely got interested in like community engagement and, uh, and, and community service in different ways. Um, and I was particularly interested around like, disability inclusion and um I think because I I also recognize that I did come from a, a source of privilege myself and my family so I did kind of recognize the, the potential privilege and power that I might have and that I could bring because of my journey and you know being at Brown and doing things that I could perhaps be a source that could help to facilitate some awareness of these broader issues, even though it wasn't necessarily affecting me personally, it was things that I, I saw systemically, um, whether, and that was like when I was in college, I did a, a national research study through a fellowship where I kind of evaluated the state of disability sport. And um, I also looked at the state of US Soccer Federation. And so I was able to develop some different uh, advocacy concepts, proposals coming out of that research. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think, I did think that, about that a lot. So your question is really right on, like, you know, I didn't necessarily always experience, um, individual, like consistently, like, you know, I didn't face, feel like I faced 
barriers. There may have been times or moments where that were a struggle or challenge, and then I was able to figure them out or find a solution. Um, but it was really once I saw the adaptive and Paralympics sports space and kind of the state it was in, and, and how how segregated and, and disenfranchised it was, and and then I started to recognize like this is a lot like the Negro Leagues. This is a lot like other historical movements in sport that have been segregated. And, you know, so I started to learn about that like in college and stuff. And uh, I found that really interesting. Um, and then also like just from, you know, the, uh, you know, the more I interacted with Richard Lapchik and his colleagues and, and that whole network of people that kind of got me thinking about a lot. So it was a really, that was a really rich time of evolving my and I asked, honestly, I didn't even think about myself as an advocate for a long time. I really resisted that label. And I, um, I thought of myself more as like an, ed and I still think of myself as an educator, although I've come to embrace the advocate side of things more um, in terms of what that means, just because I, I, I don't, I see advocacy as much a broad array of activities, not just, you know, marching in the streets per se, but an advocate is, is about how you see the world. It's about how you, you know, work to, to change minds. And um, so that, and I learned that from several colleagues that kind of showed me those perspectives on, on what advocates do and how, it, and I, I was part of actually a, st a study of um, a number of athlete act, you know, advocates that are doing work in different spaces. And so that, that helped me to embrace that identity a little bit more than I had up until that point, so. Which can be hard, right? You and I are having this conversation as two middle-aged white males, right? And and the thing is, like, which group is on the inside? Like, we're we are that group that is on the inside, but yet, as a result of circumstance, we are also on the outside. So so in some ways, you can see both the the view from the inside, from the most empowered group to a group that is that is marginalized and seeing that perception even going back to those times in school when you when you kind of I, I i was i was thinking of it as as when you acted out i don't know that that's the appropriate way of categorizing it when you spoke up when you stood up for yourself was there a galvanizing effect from your peers, you're the only one. You're the only one in this situation. What was the reaction from the other students? Because in some ways, it also like you're the only one. But at the same time, there is sometimes a bit of an adversarial kind of feel between students and teachers, right? You're you're the one who's sticking up to the teacher who's telling you what to do. What, what was did did you get that response? Was there the the reward? for stepping out of line and, and standing up for yourself. Yeah, no, I definitely think that these moments early on, I think they definitely did help me to connect with my peers and, you know, kind of, kind of normalize some of the relationships, you know, to some of my, my, my closer friends. Um, one of my closest friends is guy Scott. He had like, um, you know, he was like, saying that he had never been to the principal, you know, his entire time. And then 
something we did, like just being normal, like it got him, to, you know, we ended up getting sent to the principal's office. And so, you know, I think things like that, like you just try to, you know, make, it's more just friends and, and you know, peers and can be, you know, I ended up, uh, I was also really involved in creative writing over the years. And so I, I wrote these uh, school plays and uh, I ended up uh, having a couple of the plays like performed like in the fifth and sixth, seventh grade. Um, but one of the things that ended up was sort of a big moment for me was I, there was like, there was actually a class presentation that came in, like, I think it was like seventh grade or, and, uh, and it was really like a, a pit, it was like a disability awareness, but it was like kind of like a really, like a pity show. It was really like stigmatizing. And they probably didn't realize that someone with a disability was actually in the audience. <laughs> and, um, and so I, so that got me like really inspired to like write uh, my own presentation um, for the school. And I asked my friends if they would be a part of it. And um, um, so I ended up kind of putting that together. And, uh, and it was a good thing to do in retrospect. I think I also felt like maybe like that took it too far. <laughs> you know? it How like, did it take it too far? What do you mean? No, I mean, I think it was, it was a good thing overall. I just think that I may have like, over like not I don't know like it was I I just felt like like because I kind of wanted to really take it to the level of like developing a a really awareness campaign and really kind of become even more vocal about um, my own story and the whole experience like I just think in some ways I felt like it just made some of my friendships kind of like drifted off in different ways like from that or like I think maybe it just became um just I don't know I just felt like I it felt like maybe I went too far with trying in that time like middle school you know like you're trying to do a lot um but it was also well, that's a bit of the dilemma isn't it yeah. <laughs> I mean because you talk about you mentioned earlier how some people might have said some things behind your back yeah that it was that there was from a a potential lack of understanding and this is this is a, an effort to give that understanding, right? To communicate, to educate. Yeah, it's kind of like how far can you? Like, what is that balance? Is yeah, yeah, the balance. And and actually, it was really interesting because somehow this presentation I did it it got you know uh, through some colleagues or of my I don't know somehow I ended up getting um, connected. Uh, as part of this, actually Sarah Reinertsen and I, Sarah Reinertsen was also in this book. So this book by Jill Kremens called How It Feels to Live with a Dis Physical Disability. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was because of this presentation that I did was part of the big part of the story um, for my chapter. And Sarah's, Sarah's chapter is actually more about her journey with Paralympics because she was already involved at the time. I, I actually was not involved at the time, but, um, but no, I think for me, that part of time was it was actually a good thing for me to tell my story and learn how to tell my story and start, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I was starting to, to tell that story. Um, but again, I do think that it, um, you know, I ended up going to boarding school and I left, I left the, um, I would have gone on to the high school um, and then I decided to go to boarding school. I think part of, the, part of it was because I just like felt like I wanted to kind of have a new start, you know, a new place to 
to kind of, um, because it was, it was really emotional. I think it was just a lot I was sharing and it just probably was too much at the time. But, um, but no, I think that's part of it is just finding the balance and, and finding, you know, support and things like that. And I, I, some of my closest friends, I'm still friends with to today. Um, but yeah, but some of them, you know, a couple of them I'm not. So it's just people move on and, you know, do, do their thing. Which is the nature of yeah, the exactly. nature of growing up and going growing in a different direction, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, your wife, Sherry Blowett, uh, sent us a message saying that, that who's, you know, Boston Marathon <laughs> winner as well. Uh, Stella and Spencer say hi. She didn't say anything about whether they're eating all the tortilla chips or not. So I don't know if that's uh, there might be some left when you're done. So hopefully. But what is what is the importance of story? I mean, you're talking about story that you might have been sharing too much, but but what is what is the importance of story in, in affecting a change? And for a long time, I still I'm still not great at telling my own story. You know, I, I definitely like do more at um, talking about the system, talking about the overall problems, the trends, you know, like a big picture, um, you know, joining on to other people's case. I've worked on a lot of, you know, the case, probably the, the first big one was the Casey Martin Supreme Court case. And so that was really a powerful for me to kind of actually get involved in a big- How did you get involved in that? Um, I ended up, uh, I saw the case was happening and I saw there really, really wasn't any involvement from the adaptive sport world. And um, I actually, my, my family are lawyers. And so I, I um, started talking to my family about, you know, what could be a way to get involved. And, um, and they said, well, maybe you guys, maybe you could help to organize like an amicus brief. An amicus brief is like a you know, friends of the court brief that could help to support one side or the other, and of course, Casey Martin's side. And, um, and then I just wrote, I wrote, um, I, I knew uh, uh, Lisa Master Alexis and Anita Mormon, who are, are sport law professors, um, who have done various big cases already. And, um, and then I, I wrote to Casey Martin's lawyers and they said, oh, well, we, we can do this uh, amicus brief um, by pulling together the disability sport organizations um, and I, I'd also, it, I had reached out to them too to say, would you be interested in joining on this if we could, if it, we could, if it could happen? And um, so that was a, a good unifying uh, effort to bring the adapt disability sport movement together on behalf of Casey Martin. Um, because part of what Kate, they were arguing was that there was gonna be a Pandora's box effect if they allow. And basically the argument was that in fact, it would not be a Pandora's box because most people are just wanting to do their own kind of adaptive sport thing or, or figure it out in the way that's best for them, not change an entire rule for the sport, you know? Um, so, uh, but yeah, no, I think I've, I've, I have uh, always been interested in kind of those kind of uh, efforts, cases, initiatives that are bigger than myself and aren't really about me um, because all this is not really about me. It's not about my story. But obviously, my story does play into that, and so actually, Sherry's been a big Sherry's been a big part of because I've seen Sherry tell her story so well, and so I, you know, I, I try to tell my story a little bit more now, but I'm still not always as 
articulate and eloquent, you know, about it. <laughs> I don't think any of us are as eloquent and articulate as we would like, that's for sure. Yeah. Casey Martin taking on the PGA, trying to trying to lobby to play on the PGA. He had a circulation issue with his legs, right? So he wasn't able to walk the full 18 and be able to play. So he was lobbying to be able to use a cart, an assistive device. And yeah, the Pandora's box is a... I mean, that's that's one of those that the percentage of people who can play on the PGA Tour is a really small percentage of people. But this is this becomes a high profile case because because it is the PGA Tour. Uh, you look at him, you look at like an Oscar Pistorius. Obviously, there are a variety of things that happened afterwards that have nothing to do with this part of the story, but petitioning the Olympics to be able to run with prosthetic legs. Uh, you were also involved in in the ESPYs in helping to, to celebrate the, people yeah. with disabilities, athletes with disabilities, which is a high profile thing. What's the what what's the objective? You know, when you look at this, because you're trying to affect the change. That idea of the high profile is that is that where the change happens, or how does this happen? Yeah, no, I do feel like. Um by being involved in these kind of cases that, um, and by, by looking at, you know, big institutions of, you know, uh, by, by looking at, you know, how do you organize, I mean, I think it's more about organizational, you know, systems, organization systems, um, particularly breaking it down. So looking at, you know, whether it's happening at the Olympic and Paralympic level, whether it's happening at the, uh, professional sport level, um, that's happening at the NCAA, at the collegiate level. Um, so I've kind of been interested in like how it breaks down at the different levels of sport, but I, but I, but, but also, you know, the role that the media plays, so the, the media um, and the way we tell stories. Um, but I do think that, you know, that having uh, an impact on cases that do reach the public um, that are visible um, so people can look to analyze and unpack them and, and even disagree or disagree. Um, but I think a lot of the work that I've been involved in is really to be evidence-based. So really looking at like, why are we taking a particular stance? Like, why does this make sense? And a lot of it is around the whole idea of, of uh, inclusion and integration. Um, and so how do we really inf integrate people with disabilities and sport into, um, into a more integrated way rather than having these separate systems and separate organizations, you know, like how do we really create a integrated system? Um, but yeah, no, I think that the ESPYs just kind of came, I was with, I was working at World Team Sports uh, with Steve Wisnott and uh, we were sitting around the table and, and with some of the colleagues there and it was like, oh, I'd be so, we we're just talking about the ESPYs and we we're like, oh, I'd be so great if the ESPYs were there. Um, and then we had, we had heard that Steve Raymond was also involved. And, um, and then I worked with Richard Lapchuk to, uh, to kind of uh, help to talk to the president of ESPN about it. And then, and then Steve and I, Steve Raymond and I kind of helped to manage it for a while. And, and then now it's like gone really 
you know, very much internal at ESPN, but, you know, there's still a few of us that are involved in some ways to kind of help, but it's, uh, you know, it is nice to see these things happen. It's about the progress, you know, hopefully it continues to progress and uh, the, particularly in the media front, you know, that there's, there's more storytelling platforms that there's, you know, just even recently talking to some colleagues about uh, like just all of them, you know, Players Tribune and, you know, all the different, that these are all about story, you know, they're, they're finding great stories and there's plenty of great stories in the adaptive sports space. So, and it's, the tipping point is getting there. I feel like we're getting closer, but, you know, we're not quite there yet, but. Well, yeah. well it's interesting that you talk about story that way, because looking at sport, I mean, there there are there are battles. There continue to be battles in sport, right? And and we're talking about on the Paralympic, on the disability side of sport, and and saying you're looking for more integration, and 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 that makes perfect sense. But then, like another soccer player, like looking at uh, at like Megan Rapinoe, right? Who's who's getting tweeted out by the president? Which I I just think, I mean, like. How cool that that she has the guts to be able to stand up for herself versus the president of of the United States. But women looking for for equal integration, looking for equal pay. I mean, you certainly look at the at the minority side of things where so often if you are if you're clamoring at all for any kind of equality, it's really easy to effectively be replaced. Right, which is great to see a guy like a LeBron James, who's so willing to to put himself out there. But the thing is, like, he's a guy who can't be replaced as well, right? So, so he's he he's taking the initiative to make that happen. But on the disability side, one of the issues, and I know that you've addressed this, is that it doesn't even really get considered. Like the, you know, you're talking about the visibility where it is the starting the conversation, having an opinion, but what's that first step of actually being considered and how do you get into that conversation? Yeah, no, I think that um, I mean, part of my, my interest, and you kind of mentioned some of the other athletes and kind of how this is not just about disability, this is across the board of, of a minority and marginalized and, you know, for various populations that are kind of uh, not always in the mainstream or having to address different issues. Um, and I think that's, for me, that's been part of my interest and my work is also that to be involved at a broader kind of human rights, social justice and social change level, um, just because it's, I feel like it's important to learn from other movements and also be a part of other movements as an ally, as as a um, organizer, and um, so that's for the last ten years I've been involved with the the Muhammad Ali Center to kind of have that broader lens of sport and social change and athlete activism. And um, but I do think it's given me, and one of the reasons why I wanted to also do that is for my own kind of uh, sanity or perspective. Like I. I felt like I didn't, I was getting a little bit burnt out of just doing disability work. And I felt like to have more of a balance, it would actually gain my strength and gain my knowledge and understanding to do better in the disability space. Um, 
and also I didn't I didn't see a lot of crossover happening of of people from the disability sport movement also working in other movements. So I thought that would be also really interesting to kind of be able to kind of cross work across in different ways. Um, but one of the things I found overall that really helped me think about disability is is it's be about finding ways of being at the table, finding ways to actually present ideas in very professional, um, very organized um, ways, but also having that access, you know, having the access to the influencers. Um, uh, but also in the recent years of kind of uh, social media, of, of the ability to do blogging and, and putting ideas out there more publicly, there is, I feel, a great opportunity for the disability adaptive sport movement to be more vocal, you know, and to call out, to call more attention to um, some of these issues, you know. And I, I have noticed that the, that disability, the disability and sport movement is a little less vocal, you know, and for many reasons. It's not just because they don't want to be vocal. I think it's something they don't know how to be, or they may be not wanting to lose the little bit that they have or they don't have the connections or the networks to get to a position. Um, and even if they are in that position, are they prepared to know what to do? Um, what would so you like to see? So I think there's a lot looking, of- Looking for the community to be more vocal, what, what might that look like? I mean, I, I, just from these last you know, 10 years or so of, and kind of working across movements and, and building, I, I just think it's, it was, there's still a matter of time, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of time before. Um, but I do think that there can be some more kind of intentionality, you know, of, uh, of, of, of organizing leaders. You know, I've talked to some different people of like, we need to really like do more to, to develop our leaders. You know, like women's sports has done a great job developing leaders. Uh, the the uh, LGBT movement is doing a, starting even more so to do a good job, the um, racial and ethnic, my, my, you know, uh, black, Latin, you know, um, uh, those two particular communities I would say are doing, you know, there's all sorts of initiatives and programs, but the dis adaptive disability is not doing any, doesn't really have that yet. Um, so, you know, it's just a matter of time, you know, to, to be able to develop that uh, power you know, um, well, it's the power and it's the mission is right as well, right? Because we're talking about sport right now, mm -hmm. and, and and there are a few different pillars I think of like how change happens, right? So, so you you're involved. I mean, involved. Obviously, you were were an athlete. I mean, I guess you always continue to be an athlete, right? You're, you're always a Paralympian, but then also being involved on the academic side. So, so doing research on the academic side, but also being involved with like the UN, with creating, with helping, having input into some of these charters and yeah. some of these definitions. So you call that almost the legislative kind of side. Uh, you know, I mean, th there can be the litigation side of things. I mean, you look at like the the ADA Act, which came out of some of the demonstration, right, where where people were were literally crawling up the steps oh, of yeah. the Capitol to to get people to to recognize 
the the issue and to see the people in some ways. So so there's Mary, also, yeah, there's media. There's there's also I mean there's uh just kind of getting the stories, uh, but yeah, and I think part of it's also just uh, you know mobilizing together, you know, because there's there does tend to be um, you know just different end goals, you know, like um, I mean not everybody necessarily feels like they want to be integrated or or fully included because that may mean they lose power or they, it's, it's they may not have the, um, they may feel like if they are integrated, they're not gonna be lost in the mix, you know? And so they're gonna not be as the, atten the little bit of attention they're getting now, you know, that they may be getting a little bit either the same, you know, it's just it's part of it's that understanding of, 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 of what the possibilities are. Um, and so I think that that's part of the challenge too, is, is there's not a lot of it's just not, there's not as much history you know, so it's uh, understanding that history and realizing what 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 you'd be striving for, um, and I think that we're getting there. There's a little, getting to be more of a sense of why this is important, of why why it's important to be included in in sport and in society, but uh, but I, I think there's still sometimes I feel like oh well maybe it's better to stay segregated or maybe it's better to stay separate, um, and I feel like we that's a that's an internal battle. I mean, all, all these communities, all the movements have, it's, there's always different opinion, you know? And so I think part of it's just how do you get people moving together? And, uh, you know, that's all. And the together, I think, is, is the biggest issue, right? Because you talked about this early on, where in some ways, it, for you starting out and starting out as an athlete, it was personal, right? This is you, you became your own advocate. But you also like with your class, you found a way to to in some ways connect with that class too, right? So that it was so it was not just you being an advocate for yourself, but in a lot of ways you were being an advocate for students in general. And it's easy as a student to feel persecuted. And mm -hmm. those connections were one, it's personal, the journey is personal, but two, the connection is is personal to the audience as well and that that gets to be one of the biggest challenges doesn't it within the paralympic community of how to how to make it personal for the audience how to make it about them as opposed to about a separate group how have you thought and and researched and looked at that um, and yeah yeah, and I think it's just about how are we building allies and how are we making this so that it really can be a collective. Um, yeah, no, I definitely I do think the more that we're able to, you know, be a part of the the federations, that the more that adaptive and Paralympic sport are just able to be integrated into the sport systems, um, whether that's at the you know, uh, you know, high school levels, uh, that's at the community levels, whether that's at the, uh, you know, uh, collegiate levels. I mean, I think the more that it's a sort of a part of the infrastructure, then the more that there is that relational connection rather than it being otherized. Um, because I, I think now there's still a lot of the para adaptive are separate events, separate 
organization, you know, um, you know, there is starting, NGBs yeah, and the it's starting, it's starting to get more. I mean, there's some of the NGBs are starting to get more involved, which is great. And obviously the USOPC, uh, that has been a huge progress. I mean, you're right now you're seeing amazingly a lot of the Olympians and Paralympians really um, connected. Uh, you know, a number of years ago when they had the Olympian alumni, there was a few of us, Linda, Mistandria, myself, a few others, we were, we talked to the alumni, Olympian alumni about adding the Paralympians and, and there was like five years of, of resistance. <laughs> and then, then we finally got integrated. And, um, and I feel like that, you know, like these small steps of, of being a part of these systems, I think that to me that, and I, I think that having the Olympics and the Paralympics together, you know, I mean, that's such a huge thing. I'm having the same organizing committee. Um, but I think in many ways it has to drill, you know, drilling it down to the federation. Like right now of the international federations, I think there's only like, you know, a third of them that there's very, like not many of them are really that involved in the Paralympic side. But they're both governing both the Olympic and the Paralympic. Yeah, We're talking kind of a lot about sport, but being involved in, in Olympism, that's, that's uh, about, you know, the health of the individual, the journey of the individual, but also that connection within the community. And we're talking about on the disability side, we're talking about 1.5 billion people in the world, right? I mean, 1 1.5, 1 1.2, 15%, uh, 15% of the population, right? So, so we're talking about a big part of the population, but in a lot of ways, it's an invisible part of the population. And, and we're talking about how difficult it is on the sports side of it to get integrated. If it's that difficult on the sports side of it, how much more difficult is it than on the everyday side of it, the general community, the general population side? I think in some ways sport is a part of the reasons why I find it interesting in sport is because it is such a challenge. It's such like, in some ways, disability is kind of the oxymoron of sport, you know, <laughs> in some ways it's like, you know, because sport is so much built around like masculinity and all of these things that it's, that in some ways I feel like part of the challenge of, of sport is how do we change these institutions that are, um, that are so entrenched in these norm, you know, to kind of get them to redefine in the ways that they've been redefining over the years on many other areas and you know trying to see if we can get some redefinition but in terms of general society but like the major league baseball you're talking about redefinition right going from the disabled list to the injured list i mean how profound a deal was that to go from disabled to to injured well that was a hundred i mean there was that the terminology had been around for like a hundred years and it really um we first brought it up about so 2019 was when they actually passed with through the bylaws with um, Billy Bean, the chief diversity officer, and Manfred. And but actually, it's kind of an interesting part of the story is that we had brought this up 15 years before, and they had um, they sort of like tabled it, and uh, we got a letter from uh, Richard Lapchick, and we all got a letter saying that they would be looking into it. It looked like. But then it kind of just never happened, <laughs> and um, but no, I 
we just felt like it would be important just because of the what what the way the words of disabled list were really describing something that it wasn't because those athletes on the disabled list are not they're injured they're not disabled and so being able to act, and the the whole notion of it being disabled list it it perpetuates uh, a perception of people with disabilities as being on the sidelines and so we felt that it would be, even though it's just a simple change of words and, and language, we felt that the description to accurately describe it as injured list, just like all the other professional leagues do, is, is the way that it should be because it actually describes it as they are. Um, the, the day that it, we did like a Twitter um, study on it and there was like the, the 24 hours after was like all the traditionalists being like, this is the end of baseball. Like baseball is never gonna come back from this. And, um, and then like after 24 hours, everyone was like, oh, this is cool. And then, and then it actually took like also a 24 hour cycle for um, all, the, all, the, um, all the journalists and all the media outlets to actually, so all the, everything that was disabled list was in, to injured list. So all the, the, the tagline, you know, the, um, the ticker lines and all the the results in the back of newspapers and so all of that like changed within like 24 hours <laughs> but um but yeah the fact that it took 15 years and then 100 years of from the beginning um and then yeah billy bean is his background has been he's the first or second uh, openly gay uh baseball player after he after he retired um and he had, Billy was really a very, he had done a lot of work with this, has done a lot of work with the adaptive disability space. And um, so he, when he got into a position to have influence, he, he and then when this was, was, when this was revisited with him on his table, he, he was able to make it happen. But, um, but yeah, it's just interesting how things can happen like, like that. And sometimes it takes a really long time. <laughs> Yeah, take somebody who actually has a personal connection to 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 feeling like an outsider to understanding the situation. I remember I had a conversation mm -hmm. at one point with somebody who was saying that the word handicapped, which is which is antiquated now, was actually more flattering than the word disabled. So you're talking about disabled, like the disabled list in baseball, you're unable to perform, hence you're on the disabled list, whereas like handicapped like you're looking at horse racing or something like that, where they are promoting betting, right? And so that if a horse is running too fast, they would handicap that horse so that it would, so it would carry a bit more weight or whatever, so that then people would be willing to bet on the other horses instead of betting on just the fast horse. And you go, wow, that's a little bit more, a little bit more flattering. So the, the, the interesting part of the words really is the words carry a lot of weight, don't they? Yeah, that's the thing is these words and also they mean things in different contexts and and yeah it's just a chat i mean the the dis the language of disability and, and i mean just it's so pervasive in our you know disabled cars and you know just everywhere so and just it's really hard to be a disabled person in america and the world because it's just these constant messages of of um of being undervalued or you're second class or it's just everywhere and so First, the messages that are kind of uh, 
you get as a young person, as a professional, they're just, you're bombarded by it. And so to get an understanding of a different way of seeing it, it's, it's actually interesting for us with their kids, you know, because we have the two kids and with some, you know, it's been amazing because they are still like pretty open to like a lot of it's just like normal, like, sit, you know, playing around in wheelchairs or, you know, doing things one handed like to them, they haven't quite grasped that this is not like, this is a slightly different reality <laughs> than most kids are having. <laughs> but which is interesting once you see it right you're talking about the, this sense of a barrier the sense of a barrier that can be in a word this idea of disabled being a barrier that affects your ability to be seen for as an individual and as your potential but yet sometimes that story can just really in that context so just that human major, story so right? just in the major league baseball context is in not, I mean, in that context of Major League Baseball, it's just not, I mean, of course, using the term disabled is an important thing. It's, it's the right thing. But in the context of, of all these other leagues using injured list, and, and that's, and th yeah, so it's not about saying disabled is not a good word to use. It's just saying that that's kind of the point of that is it's, yeah, but yeah, I mean, some people did interpret it, oh, well, are we not supposed to use disabled now? And so I think that's, that was part of the challenge is like trying to help people understand, well, that's not the point at all. Of course, disabled is a really good word. I mean, it's an important word to use, but in, when, you're talking about, when you're talking about this notion of being injured and being on the sideline, but then you're using the word disabled list like that, that's not the right way to, so that's, yeah. Right, exactly. Like it's hard, it's the nuance of trying to, you know, that's what, that was the challenge of some of these things. It's sometimes it's hard people to get it, you know, cause it's like, you, it's hard to see it in these different ways. No, I think, I think you're totally right. It's interesting to see what the sponsors, some of this U.S. Olympic and Paralympic, now U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the name has gone through a change. Some of those sponsors have been intrigued by the image. So we're talking a lot about words, but the image of the athlete and overcoming is one of those words that, that kind of gets me that, you know, it's, it's but demonstrating what it means to be a great athlete. And I think being a great athlete is that part of, of doing as much as you can, is of finding a way to minimize your your weaknesses and maximize your strengths. I mean, this is what every single athlete in the world is looking to do. How important for the movement were these sponsors? I mean, you look at like a Toyota, uh, what sponsored, I, I think every for Tokyo mm -hmm. was giving, I think it was up to $3,000 for every, every Paralympic, every US Paralympic athlete or, or like hopeful as well, like supporting throughout, how how important is the voice of those major corporations? I think it really helps. You know, I think it's the more that they're able to, to stand, you know, to, to kind of be influential on terms of uh, ensuring, it's with all these issues, you know, I think that part of it's been like, what is the responsibility of of the sponsors, you know, and, and how can they have an impact on um, 
I mean, I think USOPC has been, you know, a really great leader on, um, you know, social justice, on disability. I mean, they're starting to take a leadership role and starting to see that this can be a really uh, powerful thing. I think part of it is also kind of like, how does that interrelate to the IOC level? And how, how, how does the IOC start? Like, I mean, that's, I mentioned about, you know, right now disability doesn't appear anywhere harder and uh but they're involved with the paralympics like they're involved you know there are all these different things going on with um you know they just so the good news is they the recent report their diversity report and human rights report they just released in september it does include mention of disability um for the first time so we're hoping that that's going to now when they do the up, next update on the charter um but I, I think the US, you know, what the US OPC did with the equal pay, with the name change, I mean- it, Equal it just, pay for medals. It creates right. a dynamic, yeah, equal pay for medals. It creates a dynamic. I know that um, there has been a, like I was involved with the discussion about should we give the money to the, um, to grassroots programs to develop Paralympic and adaptive sport or should we do the medals? And I said, do the medals because of what it's, it sets a precedent, you know? And, and again, going back to your question about getting involved in these cases or getting involved in these things, because it is about how do you kind of create these dynamics, these cases, these, these moments that are gonna lead to, um, you know, kind of these broader systems, you know, systems change that will have some legacy and people can build upon and, um, yeah, you know. so. which is which is great. I mean, talking about the idea of of disability actually being stated in the charter as opposed to effectively like the other box check other if you fit into this. Can we take a little bit of a right turn? One of your one of your former teammates, Josh Blue, won last comic standing. Right, so he's a comedian. Uh, back in 2012, the London Games was a watershed games as far as as far as television was concerned throughout the world. I mean, Channel Four came in and just blew it out of the water. The final the final hour of the coverage every day was the last leg, which was a comedy a comedy hour from the Paralympics. You know, so so you're looking at this. How much does that legitimize oh, definitely. the movement when you can actually share a humorous moment? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's part of it, just the innovation, the, the creative ways of, of telling the story. And I, mean, I feel like Josh, you know, he, I mean, it's, it's like, he just is, he's even on the soccer team, he was the same as he is on stage. Like he's, some ways he's not even like acting or anything. He's just being himself. <laughs> um, but no, I think that the ability to like comedy and social change and being able to make progress through, through that. Um, no, it's just, I feel like that's what hopefully will happen over the next, you know, three to five to 10 years is just, more and more kind of innovative approaches and you know getting people to think outside the box and coming up with new ways of kind of breaking down the storytelling piece um 
but yeah, and I feel like Josh was really a, one of the, I mean, I'll be, like Channel 4 and then Josh and some of these others that have really kind of helped to pave the way in that regard. But, uh, but I, I remember like on the, on the soccer team, we'd always kind of joke, we'd be like, oh, that's not, you're not being funny, but really he was like being hilarious. <laughs> and we'd like try to like, try to pretend that he wasn't being funny. <laughs> I asked him how he, how he writes a joke. And he said that he writes on stage, that he's, that he's coming up with it as it's happening, which is interesting for a guy with cerebral palsy, because oftentimes we, as the rest of the population are saying, oh no, this is somebody I might not be able to understand that it affects the speech. And, and yet he's moving at a million miles an hour and able to create this humor, humor on stage. Yeah. It is just surprising. How often is it the surprising part that is the important part? I mean, like you, you talked about that when you were a kid that, hey, you were fast and you scored some goals. And that was the thing that surprised some people, you know, got you this, got you the position, kind of an equal kind of position. Yeah, and I think it's funny because sometimes you got me thinking because sometimes over the years I've, I've, uh, you know, because I do, I try to like, you know, use my intellectual capacity a lot and quick thinking. And I try, you know, I try that approach. And, and sometimes I'm like explaining like, oh, like I had the stroke, but it didn't affect my, like I kind of have to like justify. Like, the cognitive this, part, right. The stroke did not affect my cognitive. And just so you know, like, you know, I'm thinking about things. And because I think sometimes like I get a sense before a surprise or like I'm, I'm like have thought deeply about things or something. Um, but no, I, I think, yeah, cerebral palsy or, you know, people with spastic, um, like sometimes there is a little bit of a misconception of, you know, they aren't quite going to have it all together. <laughs> so, no, but it's, uh, no, but some, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, get, get tired, you get, like when I get tired, when I uh, cold, like some things do affect my um, full, like feeling like I'm totally kind of in the moment, but, you know, overall, I, I do feel like one thing that I, probably because my family, my upbringing, like I really try to, to, to um, and that's something that I've been passionate about, like thinking about things, you know, and I think it's kind of cool to think, you know, whether it's like being a nerd or whatever, I don't, I mean, I just think it's interesting to have these discussions and, and think about these questions. What's next? in in the movement i do think that the media side of it you know the the more that we're getting the stories out there the more that we're uh really a part of the existing media platforms and even developing some of our own you know being innovative in the media space you know i think that's a big a big thing um i do think that the um the more that we're seeing the growth of the sports, I, I, I do think that this, the growth of high school and college in particular, like the more that we, I feel like that's gonna be something that is really gonna ramp up over the next 10, 15. And what do you mean by growth in high school and college? How does that work? Is that integrated? Is it separate? Is it more, is it both? Probably a little bit of both experimental, you know, but, uh, 
I think there's going to be more of like, you know, national championships. And you know, I think we're going to start seeing some of those things at the collegiate level that, um, and even high, you know, high school, college. So we're going to see more of those pathways happening. Um, we see some of that, like with basketball and. But those are not sanctioned. Those yeah, I think it's going to be more of like, uh, you know, actually being sanctioned within the system rather than, uh, and I think particularly like track and field swimming, uh, and you're seeing a lot with like tennis, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, I think hopefully basketball will keep innovating and um, even like involving uh, just ways of getting people really engaged around the sports. Um, and yeah, no, I, I think that the more that we're seeing the sponsors and like you talked on in terms of the increase of, of sponsors seeing this as a emerging market. Um, value, I, guess, yeah. I guess I would last, I would say just, I think people are gonna start caring. You know, I'm seeing incrementally people start to care more. So like the women's movement, the, the other movements of sport really starting to care what happens to disability. And, uh, and so so it sounded like feeling like, oh, you don't care about this. Like people actually care and are, are gonna wanna be a part of it, are gonna wanna help advocate or support. Um, you know, I think that's, I feel like we've kind of over the last 10 years or so been like making the case for why people should care. And I feel like we may be at that point now where people care. And uh, we're getting people in positions like yourself, Sherry, you know, many others that are like in positions of leadership that people can care about. And, uh, and I think that matters a lot. Yeah. And, and as you're talking about, like with these college teams, that it could be their team, right? That they're, they're cheering for their team. This is, this is, it happens to be a wheelchair basketball team or something along those lines, but it's, but it's their team. And so they are, they're emotionally connected and and on that journey, which I think is is exactly what you're talking about. Well, Eli, thank you yeah, so sure. much for all of the work that you're doing to you know to 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 bring awareness to 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 galvanize a you know a a, a movement really. Yeah, no, it's great to just be able to work and be and have fun and laugh and all, I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, good. Me too. Thank you very much. And I'll get to see you yeah. in the not too distant future in a couple of weeks, I think, or something like that. Yeah, and uh, so looking forward to seeing you in person. But thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Sounds good. Well, we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. Please tell your friends to tune in. It, this will be a traditional podcast when it comes out. Please like us, please follow us, and we will do our best to bring you another great conversation. Thank you very much and see you next time. Take care. Bye.